Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Monday, July the 12th, 2021. This is episode 2911 of the Survival Podcast. We have a topic roundtable. This one is almost all listener feedback, though. Sometimes when I do topic roundtables, it's a mix of stuff I want to talk about and stuff you guys have asked me to talk about today. It's really more of a straight-up feedback show. If you want to send me content for a show, period, or content for me to pay attention to, content for me to share on social media, content for me to respond to, all of that goes to one place. I have one email address that every – like I have other email addresses, but it all goes to one hole, is, is so to say, and it's jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. The key is – and this is actually really important – you need to put the letters TSPC, like they're a word, in the subject line. There's no guarantee you won't go into junk mail hell. And the only way with the amount of mail that I get that I will ever pull you out of there is if you have TSPC in the subject line. Because I'm going to go at least once a week or so into my junk mail folder. I'm going to filter for TSPC. I'm going to find all the stuff that I missed. And I'm going to hopefully remember to mark all of those people as whitelisted. And then I'm going to delete everything else because I don't have time to go through it. So that's the first step. The second step is... If you want to be paid attention to, the, the, the formula is ask your question or make your point in a single sentence. Then give me a link or anything like that if it's relevant to it. Hit the return key a couple times and then give me your details. Because if you send me a jumble of text and I get to the second, well, first of all, I probably won't read it. I, I'm just a dick that way. I'm sorry. I am. Uh, I, I can't. Uh, read everything that comes to me, so that's one way I filter. But even if I try, if I'm, if I'm on sentence two, And I'm not like, Bill's asking me fill in the blank at that point. I'm done. I'm done just on, just on time management. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and then I will at least read it. And a lot of times I give real brief, simple replies to people. Uh, I do that. I bet 50, 60 people a day get a reply from me like that. And not everybody. I can't do everybody, but 50, 60 people a day. That's, that's a lot of feedback to give people. Um, some portion get on the show. A lot ends up in social media. A lot ends up feeding my other commentary. So never, fear sending me info, just that process will make it more likely to get on the air. Here's what we're talking about today. Got a great quote of the day by Mark Twain. Real great time to think about this one. A question about how anarcho-thinking handles a problem where people are indirectly affected by another person's action rather than directly affected, though in this case, there's a direct effect as well. All right, But there, the, mostly this is indirect, and it's a good question because the situation could be a hundred different situations, right? Uh, next, uses for a fish tank in outdoor aquaponics or aquaculture. And we're talking about like regular fish tanks like the ones people generally put inside their homes. A very misguided critique of how an anarcho or virtual nation would function. So I just did a thought experiment on virtual nations and somebody wants to take me to task on it, which is fine. It's just the critique is not very well considered or thought out, and we'll talk about that because if this person feels that way, maybe other people do as well, and it's important to be understood when you're proposing a concept. Um, next, a, a really great quote. I almost thought about making a quote today, but I decided to make it a standalone thing about experts. 
are experts people who simply have become dogmatic because of what they know about the past and are charismatic enough to defend their position rather than people that can be visionaries and look forward at the next thing that we're going to learn. Um, the basic gear and software I use to record my podcast. I talk about that once in a while. Uh, I do have a new piece of gear, so I guess this will be a really short segment. Podcasting is not hard. It's not hard, especially in, if you're not going to have a crew in one room together. Like when we do the Unloose the Goose podcast, we might have two people on. We might have eight people on. Everybody has different gear. It all works through Zoom or StreamYard. If you're going to put five people in a room and you're all going to have your own microphone and you're going to run through like a mixing board or something like that, that's beyond what I do. I have no desire to do that, so I don't know anything about it. But if you just want to start a show and if you and your partner don't need to be in the same room, you can get started for about a hundred bucks with gear because most of what you, you need, you already have. You pretty much need a microphone. We'll talk about that briefly. And I got some news when we do that about Audacity. And Audacity is now collecting your data. I'll tell you why the data they're collecting probably doesn't matter if you're podcasting. And so why would they do it? And what does this teach us about things that are just free? And maybe they shouldn't be. Or maybe they should have freemium models or something like that. Because if you need money, eventually you're going to sell something. And if you don't deal with the customer, the person that uses the product, you're going to have to sell to a third party. And that means data. And that means breaking trust. And that seems like what Audacity's doing right now. Just seems like it. Um, is there anything to the so-called blood type diet? I'll tell you what I think about that. And a lot of, I, I pretty much figured it's going to make everybody pissed. Nobody's going to be happy with my answer, but I'm going to give it anyway. Uh, question on my simple one-gallon mead technique. And I want to talk about that because we haven't talked about it in a while. I want to talk about you know, how flexible it really is, how simple it really is, how you can like... You don't need a recipe if you want to make uh, orange cranberry mead. You need a technique, and then you can make orange cranberry mead. You have a starting place already. You're ready to go. Or any other mead you want to try. My basic technique gives you unlimited flexibility, and if it sucks, a gallon sucks. Right? That's, that's the beauty. Like, try, be fearless. And I'll talk about that a little bit. And then I have an update on the coming inflation And I'm going to tell you I think it's going to affect food and basic necessities in the short, mid, and long term. Uh, all of that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Uh, man, these guys have been sponsoring this show since 2010. It's 2021. They're a great organization. It is a great project to get involved with. It's a great way to get your kids, your grandkids, your niece, your nephew involved in a project. Who wouldn't want a knife that they made with their dad or their uncle or their mom or their grandfather or something like that? I mean, if I had something like that from my, my past, I mean, I, I can actually think of all the people in, in my family. My great-uncle Pete, who was my grandmother on my dad's side's brother, who served as a staff sergeant in, in Europe during World War II, And his stories about Italy and the, the absolute destitution of the people and the times that we hunted and fished together and all the long talks we had. Boy, if I had a knife I made with that man, I wouldn't care if it was the first knife I ever made and it looked like crap. You, could, you couldn't pry it out of my hands. You have the ability to start 
maybe a lifelong hobby or even a side hustle, but if nothing else, to create something that cool in your family. And you can do that all with KnifeKits.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. Guys, if you want to work with a group of people that are 100% committed to liberty and dragging a state into the world of liberty against its will if necessary, you want to learn more about the Free State Project. You can learn more about them at fsp.org. And right now, if you go fsp.org forward slash visit, visit NH, that's visit NH is in New Hampshire. You can go on up there and take a vacation and just get to know some people. And if, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't turn out that you really think that New Hampshire is a place for you to be long term. You still made new friends that have common ideals. And God, I'm telling you, a beautiful place to vacation. The White Mountains of New Hampshire, I, I don't mention this often, but the truth is a very long time ago, I hiked from central Pennsylvania up into New Hampshire. And the place that I ended up kind of calling it quits and hanging out for a little while till I got a ride home was a place called North Conway, New Hampshire. It's right in the middle of the White Mountains. And I got very close to moving there at that point. I had a job offer as a bartender, and it really wasn't what I wanted to do, but it would have been a way to stay there. And if I had not made a prior commitment to a friend down here in Texas to at least come down for a few weeks uh, that I served in the military with, I probably would have stayed up there. I don't even know if I would have went home at all. I might have just took that job and started working and just seen where life took me from there. It is that magical of a place. So take a vacation there and meet some cool people. FSP.org forward slash visit NH. With that, let's go ahead and dig into this. I want to start out with my quote of the day for you guys today. This is from Mark Twain. And when I looked up to see if I could find an existing graphic in all of my images on uh, WordPress from past shows, I didn't find it, but I really feel like I have used this quote before on the air. And boy, is it a good time, though, for it, to, to think about it right now. He said, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. Now, I want you to, I want to start out, a lot of times when we, we look at a quote, uh, I get deeply into what's being said and what's being meant. I want to start off with what's not being said on this one. You notice that Twain did not tell us, When you find yourself on the side of the majority, it means you're wrong. That the To infer that the majority can never be correct, I think that would be a logical fallacy. I would say the, the, the vast majority of people believe that the earth is round. I think that's accurate. I would say the vast majority of people believe the sky most of the time is blue, and I guess colors are subjective, but overall that's a fact. I think the vast majority of people they may not agree that we should eat certain types of food every day, but they do agree that you pretty much need to eat or you starve to death and you die. So being on the side of the majority inherently doesn't mean that you're wrong. But it does mean that you have now gone into the world of conformity. And so Mr. Twain's advice is to pause and reflect on that. Before you continue forward with your assumptions that just because most people say so, you're probably right, that you actually think about it deeply and determine whether or not this actually makes sense from a logical standpoint. And the reason I think this is so important is because of inherent reality with one of the ways that psychologically humans work. We want to fit in with the group. I talked about an experiment in an episode last week where what they would do is they would show people, a group of like, say, four or five college students, 
a piece of paper and there be some lines on it. And you have one line way over on the left, and then over on the right you have four other lines, and they're A, B, C, and D. And two of, one of the lines that's A, B, C, and D is the same length as the line that is the you know, number one. So you got, you know, there's number one line, A, B, C, or D. And let's say C is the same length. And this wasn't like optical illusions are hard. Like, some of the lines are a little closer, but, I mean, anybody with basic visual acuity could go, it's C is the right answer. But one person in the experiment was actually the experiment, and everybody else was part of the control. And the control was basically, they're in on it, and they were told, pick a wrong answer. And as soon as somebody picks the wrong answer, the other two of you pick that wrong answer, too. So if the answer is C, and Tom is, 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 is the experiment, and Tom says, it's C, and then Bill says, well, it's B, then the next two people, Larry and Sue, say, it's B. And when they run this experiment, you watch examples of where it's been run, and the person's very confident in their answer because they're right. It's not a, it's not a complicated thing. And when the other three people give the wrong answer, the person's face is in cognitive dissonance. They can't really believe They're hearing what they're hearing. They, he, they look at the other three people like they're morons. And then what will happen is the next time around, the person will pick the right answer even though they go to somebody else first. right? Somebody says it's A and it's really C again. Well, they'll pick C, but even by the second time, you can tell that they're not confident in their answer anymore. They're not, maybe they're confident, but they're not comfortable in their answer. And it's usually by the third or fourth round that unless they're asked first, they will pick the same answer that everybody else gives. They stop resisting this. And there's a reason for this. Humans evolved to be cooperative and to not stand out from the group. Because that's how you were protected from the lion or the elements or what have you. That's how tribes form. That's how social groups form was uh, a certain level of comfort in everybody agreeing on the same thing. Now, there's some value in that. Generally, if people are objective and informed and educated, and that's big if, uh, but if so, then usually... The more consensus, the more likely that the answer is true. But once you start going into worlds of programming, superstitions, right, belief systems, dogmatic belief systems, that all goes out the window. And people then want to just take an authority and grab onto it, seize it, and then repeat the same thing. And then people want to fit in. That's how you ended up with almost an entire society walking around covering their face with a mask that the people that make the mask says it doesn't do what the reason for putting the mask on was and calling it science. See, that's anti-science is not not wearing a mask. Anti-science is taking a mask that the maker of the mask says does not pre prevent the spread of viruses and saying it prevents the spread of viruses. That's anti-science. But it is conformity that allowed that to occur. All right, so when you get on the side of the majority, at least pause and reflect. At least make sure that you know why you believe what you believe. Next up, this was a really interesting one for me. Um, I, I, I've heard different versions of this um, quite a few times, in fact. 
But here's this specific example. Um, Edgar says, my question is, at what point from an anarcho mindset does another person's living conditions intrude upon your life background? T lives in a hovel that surprisingly hasn't blown over or burnt down from meth lab yet. The house is literally falling apart, and the amount of garbage laying about brings in rats and other vermin. T has been caught stealing water from the neighbors with a garden hose and has numerous trips by ambulance for ODing and has been a nuisance to all of the neighbors. Background two, I am on a board of the village, and the complaints are nonstop. I am of the mindset that it's not the village's business, but I can't. I can see the level of frustration these people have, and I don't have any good advice on how they could help the situation. Thanks for your time, Edgar. So this just happens to be the particular issue. I've just recently watched a very similar issue happen um, on next door. And what it shows us right out of the gate is that the existing system that we think we need of government doesn't work either all the time. And so however we're going to handle this as an anarchist, we need to understand all we need is a better solution, not a perfect one. There is no perfect solution to any problem, especially when you have more than two people involved. So here's the one that's going on on next door right now. There is, and this is a bigger problem in my opinion, not too far from here. There's a guy that has, I guess you call it a ranch. He's got some cows that live on some property. And it's fenced so the cows can't get off, but it's not fenced so that dogs can't get free. So you have, you know, nine-line fence or something like that, and dogs can go through it, under it, around it, whatever, and the cows are kept in by, you know, what have you. And to protect his animals, he has dogs, except he doesn't actually own dogs. He basically feeds stray dogs that turn into basically packs of dogs on his property that know him and, and don't hurt him, but and they don't hurt his cows because cow plum kicked the shit out of the dog. And, uh, but that keeps you know other predators away or what have you. At least that's, that's what people think because this guy's a dick and he won't talk to anybody about the problem. He had some dogs, and the state came out and took his dogs and fined him on his dogs that were actually his dogs. Now he doesn't have any dogs. He claims they're not my dogs. I don't own any dogs. I don't possess any dogs. They're not my legal responsibility, but he just puts food out for them, which makes them hang out. Well, they're going off his property and going on other people's property and killing people's small dogs because dogs act like pack animals, which they are when they pack up. So he's got, like, shepherd mixes and shit like that and pit mixes that are going out and killing people's other dogs. And it's only a matter of time before these dogs hurt a person. Now... That is an example of your behavior is victimizing. There is This is not a victimless crime. This is not the guy owns five dog breeds that you don't like and you're afraid they might get out and cause a problem. This meth guy is actually stealing people's shit. So I think there's, there's a variety of issues here. First of all, we don't, we don't live in an anarchy. And so we can strive to fulfill our anarchist principles. We can strive to always solve problems, you know, one-on-one, person-to-person. We can strive to always not include the state. We can strive for that. But since we don't have anarcho-solutions that are allowed to become their full potential, to realize their full potential, at times we're going to have to use the state systems. Because what we have here is a person that is stealing And if you're stealing water, that's not a huge theft, but you're also committing another crime that is a crime, even to an anarchist, right? And that is trespass. 
You can't get my water off my property without coming onto my property without my permission. This person's also creating a vermin problem, which may not be as much that person's causes as, as just that there's vermin in the area, but it surely hell isn't helping. And then this guy down the road from me, you know, he's creating a problem where he's actually creating a safety problem. And what I suggested those people down do, do down the road, and it may be the solution here, is get together and sue the son of a bitch. That's less a state solution than calling the sheriff to come out and arrest him or take his dogs away. And I also would call animal control in this situation. Because we live in a world where if they start shooting these dogs, they may or may not get away with it. They may end up in, in jail themselves. They may, if they live where I think they do, shooting them may not be a legitimately safe thing to do unless it's full on the dog's trying to kill you or your dog, right? I mean, there would be some danger to your neighbors because while this guy has a pretty big piece of land, the people that are being victimized by his dogs that aren't his dogs live much closer together and it just isn't really safe to be out there shooting with kids playing in the street and shit like that. So it's... It's a nasty situation. Both of these are nasty. One I just think is nastier than the other. But but legal recourse can be had through civic action. Now, you might think, well, the meth head doesn't really have much to take. Well, he could end up thrown off his property. There's all types of, of ways to go about dealing with this. But I think we can't do it from a pure anarcho mindset because we don't have an anarcho system. So I think we have to look at it, and, and to me, where does, where does it break down from, as an anarchist, I believe that all actions should be voluntary between adults. And I don't want to use force on anybody, including if it was okay for me to use my own physical force. Like if, I would, if, there, if this was my neighbor, and there would be, no, like I wouldn't go to jail if I went over there and beat the shit out of him once a day until he knocked it off. Like, if everybody would just go, you know, maybe if you don't want Jack beating the shit out of you, you should stop doing this stuff that's harming everybody, right? Even if that was the, the what the situation was, I don't want to do that. I don't want to initiate force unless it's a last resort, whether that force is by me directly or some sort of I've hired security to do it for me. Or I'm using the state security apparatus because I can't afford security of my own because you took my money to pay for the security that I don't really want. So it's the best that I have. And we're, we're going to end up in these situations. To me, this guy, along with Dogman down the road from me, he doesn't affect me. I'm not in, that's not my fight. Both of those situations warrant whatever can be done because both of the situations are potentially dangerous and they are harming the property and the security of others. And that's what it comes down to. You have somebody committing trespass and theft in this example, and you have somebody in causing a behavior of animals that are directly threatening the safety of, of, of neighbors and their animals. So the, that bridge is crossed in both of those examples, in my opinion. So that, that, to me, there's the line. And then how you deal with it is very situation-dependent. And since I only have limited knowledge of... Uh, what Mr. Methhead is doing, and limited knowledge of what recourse is available to you, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you that, to me, that is a place where some sort of reprisal 
is warranted. And if that reprisal has to come in the form of a state-sanctioned reprisal because we don't have another option, then that's how it needs to be. This does not sound like a person where, you know, the problem is the place is all trashed, and that's the only problem. See, if that was the problem, I'd say, then you and the neighbor should get together and go over and say, hey, Tom, what's going on, man? Can we help you out? Can we help you clean things up? Instead of throwing the, pointing a gun at them, because if you point law enforcement at somebody, you're pointing a gun at them. No cop shows up without a gun. Even if it's like a code enforcement official or something like that, they may not have a gun, but when they don't get what they want, they're going to rely on someone who does. So I don't want to point a gun at somebody because their place is a wreck and it hurts my property value. I want to fix the problem. You got somebody cooking meth, ODing, cultivating rats, stealing shit, trespassing. That bridge has been crossed. All right, next up, and that'll play into a question or a critique that I have earlier to later to respond to. Uh, next up, uh, this is a, a question about a fish tank and. The specifics aren't hugely important here in answering this so that it gets the most use, but it, somewhat, so I'll read the question as asked. It says, hey, Jack, I found a large tank in the garbage and brought it up to my patio. Can I put it to use? Not for production, but for aesthetic use. Uh, with my shit math, I think it's about 50 gallons. I'm in the tropics, and it will get hot, full sun, about four to six hours, depending on where I place it. I don't want to use a filter or run electric to it if possible. But if I, but I can if that's what it, if that will make it nice. I see people have little ponds with floating vegetation and fish without electrical input. Should I put it back in the garbage or is there a use? Sorry for the long question, but you're the expert I know about making outdoor systems. Thanks, Jason. Okay, well, we'll try the expert thing. Oh, I don't know if I'm an expert uh, on this stuff because I, I don't claim to know everything and I know that I don't know a lot of stuff, but I do think I can help you here. First of all, I think it's great you found a fish tank in the garbage. I'm going to bet there's a 90% chance when you leak test that tank that it's going to fail a leak test. And how do you leak test a tank? Fill it up with water see if it holds water. It is most likely the case, and I, I, he sent me a picture of this tank, and I would agree this is probably, I don't think it's a 50, it may be a 50 cube. It's a little bit of an odd shape. It looks like a very nice, quite expensive tank, actually. Uh, it does not look like a top fin or something like that. This looks like you know, something that is an upper-end tank, and it is a frameless tank. It has a wood frame top, but it is frameless uh, on the corners, um, and it looks like it could actually have that wood frame come off, be cleaned up, and be a rimless tank. And uh, so it looks like that was the, the, the wood frame on the top was less structural and more aesthetic because somebody liked that aesthetic because it does not continue on the back. Perhaps it's supposed to continue on the back. I can't see that. And if that's the case, that might be part of the failure. So this brings up a really cool thing. All most fish tanks are is five panes of glass held together with silicone. So when you get one that leaks, all you have to do to fix it is take all the silicone. You don't have to take it apart. You don't have to take the silicone between the glass that is holding the glass together out. You just have to get all the silicone off the glass where it's exposed. And then you can use GE number two silicone 
and you can fix it. And if you if you look up how to reseal a fish tank on on YouTube, you will find videos to show you how to do this. I've done it. It's a pain in the ass, but when it's done, you've saved a lot of money and you fixed an old tank. So if you want it to hold water and it fails the leak test, you need to get yourself some scraping tools and some razor blades and uh, some uh, some uh, some solvent, and you need to completely get all the old silicone off. And then you need to lay down new beads of silicone and let it cure for two days before you fill it. And hopefully you'll have done it right in a whole water. If that is done, or if somebody just threw it away because that piece of wood's off the back of it and it passes the leak test and it doesn't leak and you want to use it, I would say if you, you're saying for aesthetic, so you're not looking for production, you just want it to look pretty. Um, if so, then what you probably want to do is hide the, the glass from the sun. You're going to have a very, if you're in the tropics and you're in direct sunlight and the water is having sunlight delivered to it from the sides through the glass, you're going to have a lot of heating up. So whether you create a facade of some kind, uh, I would not paint the glass, at least not the front glass, because you, you know, you, maybe you want to look in there. Maybe you take uh, something like a bamboo screen and you make it look nice with that or something like that. And then you, you know, then you're going to be looking at using some, you know, floating plants, basically, maybe some small uh, dwarf lily or something like that. I would personally say that. If you want to be able to look in, you either have to get it out of the sun or you're going to have to remove some sort of a screen. Not only is it going to be very hot, if you let sunlight come in a fish tank from the side, you have an algae cesspool. So somehow you're going to have to shade that out. And then you're going to have a mosquito pond is what you're going to have if you don't have fish in it. So you're going to have to find some small fish that, you know, pretty much everything will live in your climate. All tropical fish will live fine in your climate. It's a tropics, tropical fish, done. Uh, so, you know, you could have something like neons in there or um, some sort of fish, though, that will eat guppies would be great. Just some guppies, throw them in there, you know. Uh, maybe some little frogs or something. But you can do this, but you can't do it in the sun. That's what I'm getting at. And so even the surface is going to have to be mostly covered or you're going to basically make algae. Lots and lots and lots of algae. But, you know, maybe you do start thinking about it as a productive implement. Even just one small ebb and flow bed off of that could grow something that maybe is not food. Just because you say, I want it to be aesthetic. Well, I think that, like, herbs and flowers and things like that are really aesthetic. Uh, sometimes things are aesthetic and edible. So if you had a little ebb and flow bed and one little pump, and you know you see you don't use electricity, I think it's usually people don't want to rely on electricity. Well, while it's there, you use it. It's a patio. You sent me that. I'm sure that getting power out there is not hard. Uh, I'm sure there's power there, basically, based on the picture I saw. Um, you're talking about a pump that might use 10 watts of power and a timer that goes, you know, and, and, and maybe an air stone in there, depending on for the fish or what have you. I think you'd be better off and happier, and you're not talking about adding more than a couple bucks to your electric bill. And when I say a couple bucks, I'm not exaggerating. I mean two, three bucks to run that amount of power. It's just not a huge power demand system. And if, you know, if you'd had something growing in an ebb and flow above it, 
And that was something like Ipomoea aquatica, water spinach, grew great in your, your, your environment. Then that kind of draping of that trailing vine and the flowers it gets would be beautiful. And you have an edible that you can use as you see fit. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do with it, but you got to get it out of the sun. You, you just, I, I've done, um, tanks in my home that got hit with the sun for two to three hours a day, and it was almost impossible to control the algae in them. Because you just get such an intense reaction of not just sun hitting the, the water, but you think about the amount of exposure. So when we put a, a light, an artificial light over top of an aquarium, we're coming down from above, and it's very analogous to how a pond would, would collect sunlight. When you take a fish tank and you let... UV light hit it from the side. It's getting a level of exposure that it would never get in a pond in the ground in nature, if that makes sense. Uh, next up, let's talk about uh, my episode recently on uh, virtual nations, which this individual immediately called DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. Well, certainly, we're going to start off right there uh, of uh, where Mike here from Missoula is missing it. Because I didn't, I didn't say it should be a DAO. That would be one form in which it could take to build a virtual nation. And as I talked about virtual nations, I also talked about how we might already have them from a, from a, from a uh, standpoint uh, that cryptocurrency alone and certain ways that we interact alone has already created these virtual nations. So you've already tightly defined something that I didn't define tightly before you critiqued it. So we've already started off in a place where we're not, we're not in the same building, in the same section, talking about the same thing. We're talking about a piece of the thing that may or may not work that way. Because I, I left this way out in the open. Even without that, though, this critique is, well, it, it's, it's the same but different man in the world of objecting to anarchism. So let me read it. Dear Jack, your thought experiment on DAOs was interesting, but you were looking at it through a rather narrow lens of commerce. Commerce flows most efficiently through a healthy, balanced, free, and peaceful society. Uh, I'm going to stop right there and just say, which doesn't exist in a world where we have men with guns that can arrest you because you grew a plant or because you said something you weren't supposed to say or because you, you did anything that didn't victimize another person. Okay, so we don't have a, a healthy, balanced, free, peaceful society right now. We do not have one. You have the illusion of peace because generally the violent actions of the state do not affect you in a way that you're not okay with. Okay? We do not have a healthy, balanced, free, and peaceful society when my money is taken from me against my will on an ongoing basis. So we don't have that, but I'll continue. Um, Healthy, balanced, free, and peaceful societies, which are complex systems that encompass far more than just commercial activity. Okay, Such complex systems require maintenance and upkeep at multiple levels. So, so, okay, uh, maintenance and upkeep at multiple levels. Maintenance has costs associated with it. Oh, wait a minute, Mike. Wait a minute. We're back to commercial activity. You're saying there are things that need to be done so that society can continue in a, in a relatively balanced way, and that has an expense associated with it. And that your contention then is that I wouldn't be willing to pay for services simply because I would have a choice whether to or not 
even though I need those services. Okay? Seems a little flawed, but let's continue. The co those costs are not exclusively monetary. Dude, the cost of everything can be handled with money. There is nothing that needs to be done that there isn't somebody willing to do for enough money. So that is, that is fallacious right there. So what I just out of your thought experiment was, how can I take advantage of conducting commerce in a free and stable society without having to pay for the cost of maintaining that stability? Well, that's because that's what you wanted to get out of it, Mike, because that's not what I said at all. I'm, I'm totally okay with the thing you think that we need to make society stable going away and paying for what I need as I need it out of pocket. I'm totally okay with that. You're the one that's not okay with it, not me. All right? Um, or how to be a freeloader. So your contention then, Mike, is the people who are most concerned about providing value to others are the freeloaders. That doesn't seem like very logical. I would not join such a DAO. Well, since it's not a DAO necessarily, maybe you wouldn't be able to anyway. Maybe we wouldn't have you, and I didn't ask you to, just to be blunt. Especially one whose guiding ideal is that the non-aggression principle as you have defined it. Wait a minute. No, Mike, I didn't define the non-aggression principle. There's no as I have defined the non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle has its own definition that's independent of your opinion of it and my opinion of it. I just happen to know it. I don't. It's not my opinion. The non-aggression principle is to not hurt people or take their stuff, to not initiate violence and force against another unless it's in defense of yourself or others who are being harmed. That's, that's not how I've defined it. That is it. it. It's like you're saying, based on your definition of the sky, and what I've said about the sky is it's the area above us. It's not my definition. It's not how I've defined it. The sky is the sky. The non-aggression principle is the non-aggression principle. I agree with the sentiment behind it, but I prefer this version of it. Violence is a tool of last resort. Stop right there, Mike. I never said it wasn't. Let me read the rest of it. To be utilized only when nothing else will do. Okay. And that issue is, and the issue is that important. What? What? You've just defined, it's the same definition, dude. You just don't like the application of the definition. You're not actually objecting to the definition. What you're actually saying is it's okay to use collective violence because collectively we've decided that it's okay, even though other people who aren't bothering you want nothing to do it. So now you've, you've, you've tried to use your paint around the definition to change the definition. You're inferring, I guess, because the definition you gave, there's nothing wrong with. But you're inferring that it's okay to use theft to provide for the violence to get what you want. Sounds like freeloading to me. I know you're fond of quoting Eisenhower, so here's a quote from him on the matter. Quote, I know something about that war, and I never want to see history repeated But my fellow Americans, it certainly can be repeated if a peace-loving democratic nation, again, fearfully practice in a policy of standing idly by while big aggressors use armed force to conquer the small and the weak. Oh, so we shouldn't stand idly by while big aggressors use armed force to conquer the small and the weak. Really? Big 
big aggressors like what? The federal government of the United States, the, the, the government of the state of fill in the blank, Florida, Texas, Georgia, South Dakota, New York. Those aren't big aggressors. The people that they use their force against to conquer the small and the weak are not the individual. You're going to tell me there's not, there is a smaller minority than the individual. And then the decree of democracy here from Eisenhower is disingenuous because while I like Ike, right, he's still a politician. He was still leading the state. And the concept that something is okay because it's democratic is so flawed is it's almost not worth responding to anymore, Mike. It really isn't. Because democracy would be five of us go to dinner and then four of us vote that, Mike, you're paying for it. And then if you don't want to pay for it, we use force to take your money and make you do it, and we justify it through majority and democracy. We all You had a vote, too. You lost. Deal with it. Because what we're using is big aggressors using armed force to conquer the small and the weak. This is one of the most flawed critiques I've ever received. I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying, like, Almost nothing you said here pertains to what I actually said or even pertains to the broader argument of can you have a free society truly where people are not coerced and forced into giving up their property and their money in the name of the public good. Because that's your basic argument here is we need government because I can't figure out how it would work without government. That's what you're saying. And again, when you make a claim that I'm trying to figure out how to be a freeloader, how can I participate in the commerce of the larger society without paying for it? You're inferring that I'm not okay paying for it. I'm okay paying for the solution that I think is best to my problem in a free market of both ideas and items. Initially, you, you, you come at this from a standpoint that it's far more than just commercial activity. And again, my contention is number one, The foundation of all society is commerce. It's always commerce, and it's always been commerce. It's always been the reason that these two groups of people that otherwise would not pay attention to each other pay attention to each other is because they each have things the other can benefit from, and they want to trade with each other. If you take away that, you don't have society as we, as we know it today. You might have people that hang out together, But if we didn't have commerce, the people in the United States wouldn't be giving two shits what the people in China do. Not two shits. Would not care. Every time you walk into a store and you see an item that a thousand people had something to do with getting to that point where you could go in and get it, and it was made for you, you're seeing the foundation of society being commerce. Now, I didn't say it is the only thing that creates society. I said it is the foundation It is the keystone principle of why and how humans interact with each other generally peacefully. Because as I said many times in, in the history of this show, the reason that people will naturally avoid conflict is because conflict is expensive and conflict has consequences. And what implementation of state systems of control has done is made conflict outsourceable without any real skin in the game. You don't like your neighbor, you call the police. You see how that works? And it's all paid for. Your ability to do that is contingent upon my wealth being stolen from me. 
I don't want to pay for schools because I pay for my grandchild's education out of pocket directly. If you want to use the public school system, you should pay what it costs to get that education. Because, hey, you know what? It's in society's best interest that people are mobile and can get around in a car. So the justification of I should pay for your kid's education, I could say you should pay for my kid's car. Where does it end? Where does it stop? How about it stops with that which is rightfully acquired cannot be taken by another party against the will of the person who rightly acquired it. See how simple that is? What you don't like about it is that it's, it, it's logical And you probably agree with it, but since you can't figure out how it works, you put yourself into a circular logic loop. Well, we shouldn't do this, but we have to, so we're gonna. Instead of asking, how can we not? And I'll leave it with, as long as you're taking from me against my will, I have my rights to resist you with every means possible. And I only have to decide what makes sense for me. So... If what makes sense for me is developing a way for people to do business with each other outside of your systems, and we don't ask you to pay for it, then I'm damn well got within my rights to do that, and so does anybody else. Then here's a quote I really like. This came from Trey. Trey said, I listened to your Miyagi recap show just now, and you talked about grass-fed cows. Your talk on experts reminded me of this quote from a great book called Under the Red Sea Sun. Ellsberg who had vast technical knowledge and experience, described experts as, quote, people who know so much about how things have been done in the past, they are usually blind to how they can be done in the future. Oh, you mean like our guy we just talked about, Mike? See, and I think there's so much of this, and it's experts, but it's dogma in general, that since this is the way things have been, it's the way things should be. It's like twisted conservatism. It's like the definition of conservatism your, your civics or history teacher gave you in high school that was wrong. That, that, that conservatives don't want things to change and liberals do. That, that, that's what I was taught about liberals and conservatives in, in high school, and I didn't realize how stupid it was until long after high school. But that, that's basically the same concept here, that people say, well, we've always paid for roads through taxes. So the only way to have a road is the way we've always done it. I'm glad those people aren't in charge of things like, you know, should we build satellites and spacecraft before they existed? See, experts, real experts, are people that can do something in a new way and figure out how to make it work. What we refer to as experts are people that tell us something we don't need an expert to tell us, how it's always been so it should stay that way. It is about control, is what it comes down to. It's control through bureaucracy and dogma. And that's what Mob Miyagi Mornings was about highly today. So I'll, I won't say any more on that one. But I, I do like that quote, and I will be using it again in the future. Uh, experts are people who know so much about how things have been done in the past. They're usually blind to how they can be done in the future. And boy, I, I don't think there's a place where that's more true than in the realm of government. And, and I just, this is my challenge to people that say anarchism can't work or it'll never happen or it can't be, is we've already talked about how so many things in your life are anarchistic relationships already. 
You have friends. You guys hang out. You do things. You have commerce between each other. You have agreements between each other. You settle your own problems. You don't call the police in because your buddy wants to welch on a poker bet. You figure out how to deal with it, and you do that all the time anyway, right? So already we've already taken away this idea that like this is some foreign component. Like most of our interactions in in in, in society in general are anarcho anyway, but. My challenge for people that say it can't work is, have you even thought about how it can? Or have you only thought about how it can't? Have you taken a position that you've defended, or have you attacked your own position to the point where you've proved it to be the most correct decision for you? Those are different. When people say, well, how would you? My response is generally, well, how would you? And if you don't have answers to that, you haven't considered the problem. You've just assumed there's not an answer. And when I look at things in the world of anarchism, my contention is I don't... It, it, I just listened to a really great uh, interview today, at least part of it, between Michael Malice and Jason Stapleton. And Jason Stapleton is my favorite anarchist that doesn't know he's an anarchist, that is in complete denial of his own anarchism. Because the circular logic Stapleton used in that discussion with Malice was just freaking hysterical. He kept saying, like, well, how would anarchy deal with this? And he would bring up something that government failed at. Government was actively failing at. He brought up the whole thing about the tuna fish at Subway not having any tuna in it, and he pointed out that the newspaper, I think it was the New York Times, ran the DNA test on it. And like, well, in an anarchy, how would you handle that? Well, first of all, with all of the litany of shit that the government does to oversee the food industry, supposedly, that happened. Government didn't prevent it. I haven't heard that government's done anything to correct the problem since it was discovered. And the problem was actually discovered by a non-governmental organization or agency or a private company doing a DNA test. And now Subway has to deal with the fact that whatever the hell's in their tuna sandwich isn't tuna. And people know that. So you've, how would you fix this problem that government has failed to fix? See, my look at this, coming from this viewpoint of experts are really people that are addicted to old ideas. That's what we call experts today. The state has existed for about 6,000 years in one form or another. The state's had 6,000 years to solve all these problems that it's failed to solve. Perhaps free and voluntarily associated individuals after 6,000 years of their failure, should be given the opportunity to try a different idea. That's all I'm saying. Uh, next up, I thought this was a really great question to just knock out quickly for a lot of y'all that are thinking about maybe podcasting yourself. Beth, you know, I love that song from Kiss still, Beth, right? Um, there was actually a really cool commercial using that song uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess. For It was for mobile phones, but it was if you've seen it, you know it was a cool commercial. Um, Beth says, I've been a fan of yours since last year. Joined your membership brigade to happily support the amazing work you're doing. Well, thank you for that, Beth. I would love to know more about the equipment that you utilize to record your podcast. Would you share a bit about that with us on an upcoming show? Mic, recording device, how you record your interviews with others, etc. Okay, so... For my microphone, I have been using for years, and this is in at T-Spaz, but I don't even think they make the version I have anymore. I've used it for so long. It's a Samson, S-A-M-S-O-N, C-O-1-U, 
USB studio condenser microphone. And that's it. Um, it was actually given to me. That's how long it's lasted. It was given to me by a listener in 2010, and I still have it, and it still works. It is a USB mic, meaning I plug a cable into the mic, and I plug the microphone directly into the computer. That's all I use. That's all I've ever used. I have no mixers. I have recently switched uh, for my podcast, and I've been using it for the live streams as well, to a Blue Yeti microphone. And uh, it's badass. I love it. I think it has better sound than the Samson. It is, my understanding, the most popular uh, USB microphone in podcasting today. I did a lot of research on it. They cost between $100 and $110, bucks, depending on what color you get. Because even though it's blue, blue is the brand, not the color. Um, it's got gain adjustment. You can use headphones with it for self-monitoring. It's got volume adjustment for that. And it's got a mute button, which I love for when I'm doing interviews or panel discussions, so I'm not clicking a mute function on software, which Canon at times does fail. It's got a light, and when I push it, I can tell that it's muted, and when I want to take it off, I can tell, and it's very quick if I get caught off guard with it. Um, I bought a windscreen for it for like seven bucks. It is fantastic, and it's what I'd recommend. To record shows like you're hearing today, when I'm not doing an interview, I use a program called Audacity. It is free. It works. There may be some other options to use. I will talk about those in a second when I tell you about something that's happened with Audacity. But if you're using older versions of it, and mine's like it's version 3.0 that has this issue, and I'm using 1.3 beta. And I've not upgraded it, and I don't plan on upgrading it. And it, so this, this issue I'm going to give you in a minute doesn't affect me. It's about privacy and data and things like that. Um, but I, I've always used Audacity to record with. I found it to be the best recording program. You can edit with it, and you can render out MP3s with it. That requires installing a .dll file. You can look up how to do that online. It's easy on a PC and a pain in the ass on a Mac. I've done it on a Mac twice now, and I still... I don't know how I eventually got it done. It was a pain in the ass. So if you're using a PC, it's very simple. If you're using a Mac, it might be a little more complicated. I don't know if the other options I'm going to give you um, will render as MP3s natively for you. Um, the Audacity, when you download it, at least the old version I have, uh, rendered a .wav file, which is how I render my raw files as .wav files, Microsoft .wav files. I do that because I put all of my files through a, another free program called Levelator. And Levelator does what it sounds like. It levels the volumes. And the only things that don't go through Levelator are things like music or sometimes when I put a clip in from the news or from a movie or something like that, I usually pull that out when I'm editing and I drop it back in and manually adjust the volume of that because if that clip has background music and stuff like that and I level it, that background music will become level with the commentary. So that's handled a little differently. That's something you can get down the road. It probably won't affect you much anyway. So I record with Audacity. I render as a WAV file, and I level with Levelator. I then render and do all my actual editing and blending and stuff like that with a program called Sony Vegas. This is a very expensive, high-end video editing software suite. I own it for other reasons, and since I'm very good with it, I edit with it. You can edit with whatever you choose to, and again, 
Audacity and some other options here will do that for you if you want to. I use this because it's easy. For recording podcasts, I use Skype, which is kind of outdated in the podcasting world, and I'm about to change that, but I have used Skype and Skype Recorder for over 10 years, and it works flawlessly 99% of the time. Skype is free, and Skype Recorder, the pro version, which you'll want, I think is like 20 bucks. And so that's what I use for recording podcasts. I am going to start using StreamYard for recording my podcasts with guests. And probably as long as the guest is okay with it, streaming the videos. And if nothing else, having the videos and being able to then publish them as videos. Because I think it does make sense to take your content and put it on more than one, one type of format and platform if you can. After looking at Zoom and StreamYard, and that's all, like, there's some other stuff like OSB or something like that, whatever. Um, I decided between Zoom and StreamYard, StreamYard was more powerful and easier to use. So if you're going to be doing interviews and you want video of it, I would consider using StreamYard. Um, Skype Recorder does record video. I have been less than enthused at the results from it, and it doesn't stream. And so if you're going to have guests that are okay with streaming, I would look to StreamYard. That's pretty much it. Um, I, I, I don't really – it seems more complicated than it is. Now, you've got hosting and all that. That's a different world. Just from recording, you could use Audacity, which is free, any microphone that you're uh, satisfied with, and, and you're done. That's really all you need. And then you then with you know interviews – Skype and Skype recorder, or use a service like Zoom or StreamYard. I believe that most podcasters today that are only recording and not streaming tend to side with Zoom. I advise against that. If you're a podcaster, I think StreamYard is just after all the research I could tolerate doing is the way to go. Uh, I will put links to the microphone uh, that I'm using now in the subject or the uh, the notes for today, uh, and I have some links to some other stuff that you may find useful when I kind of segue here into the next part. Uh, totally unrelated, um, somebody else sent me an email um, about Audacity. Dylan, uh, who's just been great over the years, Life Hacker article that says, is Audacity really spyware? And it only is the 3.0 version and forward because Audacity is a piece of open source downloadable software that you run on your computer. So whatever was in the version that you are running when you download it is what's there. There's no way to change that unless you choose to upgrade. Okay? So the 3.0 privacy policy says they're going to collect data like IP addresses, machine IDs, and they may even share that with law enforcement if necessary. I'm not sure exactly where that would come down. I personally, unless 3.0 does something amazing that I can't do some other way, would just not upgrade to it. I mean, I use Audacity for very basic recording and very basic editing. And what I mean by very basic editing is if I record a segment that's not going to be a whole show and it has like a long pause on it, I clip that out before I render the file out. That's it. That's all the editing I do. Since the version I've been using for 10 years does that, I don't need a new version. I have no need of a new version. You might, however... The concern would be that if Audacity, because Audacity, you don't have an account. You don't have an email associated with it. Uh, the, the concern would be that 
by knowing your IP and your machine ID and something like that, that somebody could take an audio file that you've created and figure out where you are and who you are. Okay. Well, if you're doing the, uh, you know, I am uh, Mr. X podcast and you're not revealing your name or your identity and you're using, you know, proxies and things like that and you're using some sort of virtual hosting that you can't be associated with you and some sort of locked domain name where nobody can find your name and all to do your podcast and it's really important to you that you stay unknown, I guess that might be important. I guess that might be important. But if you're a public-facing personality podcaster, I'm not worried that someone's going to be like, you know what, that podcast by Jack Spierko yesterday, Jack Spierko did that podcast, and he's in Texas. I'm not real worried about that. Um, my thought would be that this may have something to do with people having used Audacity to record things and sending files to each other that could be maybe used for something that the state would consider nefarious, I guess. I mean, this primarily is for, I've never heard of that. I'm just guessing here because the purpose of Audacity is to make audio files and everybody I've ever heard use Audacity has used it to either make podcasts or do something like make an audio recording to drop into a video somewhere. So it's generally not been used by people that are trying to send messages about, you know, to get around the NSA or something. But maybe it is. Maybe people figured out that you drop an audio file somewhere, and if you were using voice distortion, it was a good way to pass on information that maybe you weren't worried about the third party like the government or law enforcement knowing the information, but knowing the source of the information. I guess. I don't think it's really that big of a deal. There are some options, though, for recording programs other than an older version of Audacity. And I'm sure you'll be able to get old versions of Audacity for, like, ever. That right now there are people reading this that are pissed off that are uploading, like, you know, 2.5 or something like that. Again, if you use an old version, this does not affect you. But there's something called Dark Audacity, which I might try, just for the hell of it, um, because maybe it has solved the DLL file problem or something like that. Uh, and basically, it was marketed mostly as just it looks cooler because it's a dark theme than a light theme, but it's its own thing because it's open source and freely distributed. Anybody can do anything they want to with it. You could even use it to build an editing suite or something like that that's something else. So uh, Dark Audacity exists. And then there's another free recording software called Reaper, R-E-A-P-E-R, -E -E and you might want to check into that if this concerns you. And I, there are people that are saying they're switching And it isn't even really because they're afraid of a problem, because they know they can use the old version. They simply don't want to use it since Audacity's made this decision. I respect that. Audacity doesn't care. The, one of the reasons they're doing this is to collect data that can be sold more as, I'm guessing, like trend data, because they have no monetary model. There's no freemium. There's no upgrade. And this is why, even though I use services like Levelator and Odyssey. I'd prefer not to. I'd just prefer that Audacity give you a trial for 30 days and you pay nine bucks for it if you like it. If you can't afford nine bucks for recording software, you're not going to be doing a podcast. You can't afford a microphone. If you, if I wouldn't pay $9.95 or even $19.95 for a piece of software, I'm not going to keep using it. If Audacity had just said from now on, if you want the upgrades, it's, it's $20, bucks, even though I haven't upgraded it for years 
I probably would have bought the upgrade as long as it still did the same shit or better to support them. I, th I, this is why I think that you need to be doing business when you can with companies that have revenue models where they either share revenue with you or they gain revenue from you. So if I look at Brave, yes, they put advertisements in front of me and they pay me to look at those advertisements. I'm okay with that. Because I'm more important to them than the advertiser at that point. They've acknowledged my existence and my value and my worth. And honestly, if, if Brave decided they didn't want to do advertisements at all and they wanted to go fully to a way that creators made money was through tips and things like that, which I get, and thank you to those of you that send them to me through Brave and Basic Attention Token and all that. But they said, you know what, we're going to build the best browser ever. And it's $10 a year. And no one will ever get your data. No one will ever get any information on you. We will lock it up tighter than a monkey's ass. But it's going to cost you. I'd buy it. And I just think more and more companies need to start taking this approach to, to I should be your customer. If you want a free version and you want to do some way to upgrade me, that works too. MeWe does it. MeWe and MeWe Pro. MeWe Pro is four bucks a month or something like that. I pay for it. Doesn't bother me. I feel like that I get way more than four dollars a month in value out of MeWe as a brand, as an advertiser, as a social media tool. All the things that it does is worth four bucks a month to me. If it wasn't, I wouldn't use it. I honestly, anything that I'm going to use regularly is worth a few bucks a month to me or a few bucks a year to me, or I wouldn't use it in the first place. Clearly, it has value, or I wouldn't choose it of all the choices I have. And nobody makes me do it. It's amazing. It's almost like anarchy works or something. Free markets. Who would have thought? Next up, Marcus says, What do you think of the blood-type diet? My 89-year-old uncle has been following it for a while and can still chase my 8-year-old twins. Here's the website for reference for number four, yourtype.com uh, forward slash all about blood type O, which, by the way, I am blood type O. This is where I said I think everybody's going to be pissed about it. The general consensus is a dichotomy around this diet. It works or it's bullshit. I don't agree with either one of those. I'm not big on dichotomies. I'm more on logical analysis. And I fall in line very much with Ken Berry on this. And this is what I believe. There is one best diet for humans, and it is meat. An animal product. It is meat, fat, organs, quality dairy, comes from something with a face, and vegetables. Not fruits, vegetables. And maybe not everything has a face. I don't think oysters have a face. You get it, it's like living critters, vegetables, and I think there's some real intrinsic interrelationship between humans and fungi as well. So fungi. And at the The best diet is what we call keto, or what Ken call, Dr. Ken calls the proper human diet. Where I think blood plays a role in it, and I'm going to bet, Ken talked about a body type or something like that and when he was here at my workshop during his presentation, and he said, you know, Jack and I are this, and that means if we go off this, we put weight on quick. We can't get away with cheating very much, if at all. We have to be adherent to this diet. There's other people that can be, you know, a little bit looser and relatively healthy. 
I do believe blood type plays a role in this. And I absolutely believe, and I think there's plenty of scientific, real scientific evidence for the fact that the O blood type is the most ancient blood type. It is most closely linked to the first humans that evolved eating this way because if you were around that long ago, mostly before agriculture, you had to. You ate the plants that you could pick up and stick in your mouth and you killed shit or you scavenged. Right? I mean, I love Alan Savory, but when he says the human is a scavenger, not a hunter, and his justification for it was, and if you don't agree, try to run down a gazelle and beat it to death, that denies that human beings have the ability to be predators through our intellect and our ability to make tools and to make decisions like, oh, gee, if we run these animals off that cliff and they fall down, we can walk down there and eat them. And it would be like saying a, a, a spider's not a predator because it has to build a web. So an ambush spider is a predator, but a web-based spider is not really a predator. They're a scavenger. They use technology to cheat. That, and I, I don't agree. I think that we, and I think there's a lot of things that we can act as predators on that aren't gazelles that can kick the shit out of us with their hooves. There's little gazelles, so we can choose to pick off the weak and the small. I mentioned an oyster. They don't put up very much resistance. Good rock, and you can get an oyster or a clam. There's tremendous amounts of, of animals we can predate on that we don't think of it as the way that a lion predates on a gazelle. So how does that factor into blood type? When you start looking at like Mediterranean blood types, etc., these... Blood types are indicative general of genetics developed over time and adapted more and more towards modern civilized diets. Less things with a face, more things that come from a field that are cultivated like grains. And so I think what you have, to me, with blood type, and again, I know this will just pretty much make everybody miserable, is it's legitimate But all it tells you is how far from the, 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 the best diet you can go without totally jacking yourself up. And you'd still be better off sticking to a more primitive diet because in the end we're all from that type. So that's, that's my thoughts on um, this diet. But I do think it's, it's why people with O blood types seem to have a predisposition of doing really well, really fast uh, with, the, with this type of eating. That's just my thoughts. Uh, next up, I was asked if I could go over my easy one-gallon mead recipe. He said, I know you did a whole podcast on it years back, but I can't find it, albeit I didn't look too hard. I want to get back into making a batch every few weeks to a month. I want to cut back in drinking, and I figure make it myself and drink only what I make. Well, it will be cheaper, less unhealthy, and more fun. Oh, and if a batch doesn't suck like the vanilla oak mead I did years ago, I'll send you a bottle. Thanks, Chris in Minnesota. I will find some of the episodes I've done on small batch mead making, but if you were to put like small batch mead in the, into the search box, you would find it really fast. Um, but I'll just give you the very, very basics of how I make a batch of mead and the base recipe and then what you do with it from there. And then I can do all that in under five minutes, and I can make a batch of mead almost that fast too. So my basic recipe is two and a half to three pounds of honey, and I usually do three pounds per gallon. And I use an electric kettle, 
and I, I fill up the kettle and I heat it to like where it starts to make noise like it's going to boil, but it's not boiling. And I do not use the thermometer. I do not worry about the temperature. It, that, that hot is going to be well over 160. Now that I have my new electric kettle where I can dial in, I, I'd set it to about 180 degrees. And then when I do that, to sanitize my bottle, this is my entire bottle sanitizing regimen, I fill it about a third way with cold water, put my hand over it and shake it to rinse any kind of material out of it. And then when I get that water up to about 160, 180 degrees, I pour a little bit of water in there, I put a lid on it, and I kind of slush it around, and I dump it out. That's good enough. That's it. It's good to go. And then I add three pounds of honey to the bottle. And if the honey's not flowing well for me, what I'll do is I'll put the, the, the container with the honey in it into a pot of water on the stove, and I'll heat that until the honey will flow. And the way I measure the weight of the honey is I take the bottle, and I put it on a scale, and I just keep pouring honey into it until it says three pounds. And if I can't get any more honey out and it looks close, it's good enough. I throw some hot water in, in the honey container with what's left of it and shake it up and dump it out. Right. So I don't, maybe a batch has 3.1 pounds or 2.9 pounds. But, you know, I kind of estimate it and get it there. And if it's a little extra, that's fine. I'll have a little bit more body. I'm not trying to make a product here to go in a meadery that I have to get the government to approve. It always has to be the same. That's kind of the antithesis of home crafted mead in the first place. And then uh, I add the hot water to the bottle about half full, and I put a lid on it, and I shake it until the honey completely dissolves into the water. And then I top it up with, well, I don't top it up. I fill it to about two inches from the top, three inches from the top of the bottle, depending on what I'm making, with cold water right out of the tap. I do have a well, so my water's pretty badass. If your water's not badass, you might want to use bottled water for this. It is cheap, and so you can do that if you want to. I then have another top. So I just use a plastic one-gallon apple juice bottles are kind of my go-to for a fermenting vessel. So I keep one lid that doesn't have a hole in it. I take the other lids, I drill a hole, I put a stopper, and put an airlock in them. So once that is there, I put the airlock on it. If it feels cool enough to touch, I go ahead and pitch my yeast. If it feels pretty hot yet, I let it sit for a while until it cools down, and I don't use a thermometer. I have never had a problem with my yeast dying doing this. Basically, I feel the bottle, and it should feel like I'm touching a person. Um, in old recipes for making beers and ciders and ales and, and meads and all that shit, the term that was used in a lot of journals and, and things like that from like the 17th, 18th, 19th century is blood warm about body temperature. So, you know, somebody with a mild fever, you know, might be 102. Uh, generally speaking, yeast can pitch about 110. There's no problem pitching it lower than that. So if it feels like, you know, touching somebody's forehead when you touch that bottle is good. Pitch your yeast, ferment it out. When your primary fermentation stops, we're going to rack it. That means we're going to use a siphon and transfer it to another jug, leaving the sediment behind. And this is where everybody says I'm wrong, and I'm not. They are. I've built that recipe for a gallon, so I will add clean water to the 
top of that fermenter. And I don't mean like beat it at the top. I mean up to like the bottom of the the, the, the part where the cap screws on. So there's a you know inch of clearance there, half, three quarters, something like that. And I put the airlock back on. And I let it ferment till it clears. And then I bottle it. Now, how do we turn this into strawberry meat? Put somewhere between a half pound to a pound of strawberries in the fermenter. And then put that on your scale. Dump a little bit of hot water on them. Right? So that kind of pasteurizes them. And then hit zero on the scale. So zero the scale out and add your honey and just do the same thing. Whatever you're adding, just add it when you add and add a little hot water to it and zero your scale out. Add three pounds of honey and continue. Do whatever you think sounds right. Try anything. And then you can also add flavors in your secondary. So vanilla oak mead, I'm not sure why that didn't come out because that sounds pretty good. Though it probably could have used a little acid. That would have probably been good to like you know, take a quarter of a lemon, squeeze the juice into it, and add the zest of that lemon to balance it a little bit, or something a little more tannic, like maybe some uh, tea, just regular old plain English, you know, tea, uh, for a little more tannin. That might have balanced that a little bit better for you. But vanilla, I like to add my vanilla in my secondary. So I like to use real vanilla, a whole vanilla bean. So when I'm going to transfer it, I'll take that vanilla bean, and I will split it in half, and I'll put it in that secondary fermenter, and I will transfer on top of it, and I'll leave it in there. And I know what you're going to say, but it's not sterile. If you need to make it sterile for your own edification, remember, we're going to top that secondary up, so we can take ourselves a little pot of water, split our vanilla bean, throw it in there, bring it to a bare simmer, it just starts to really steam, and then we can dump that into the bottle, and you can rack right on it. You're not going to hurt the yeast. You're going to, by the time that thing fills up, you know, even if a few yeast cells, there's billions of them in there, you're still going to ferment out your second ferment. And we're going then we're going to use cool water to top it up like we would have anyway. And I don't do a lot of for, uh, adding things to secondary fermenter. Vanilla is one of them. Uh, usually cinnamon, ginger, etc. I do that in the primary, but I have, I will often taste my mead. When it's going into my secondary, knowing it's not finished, but I can still tell, like, I want a little more zing of ginger in there. I might add some ginger then in the secondary. Now, here's the beauty of this method. You can test shit so simple, and if you if you screw it up, you're out three pounds. Mostly your expenses in the honey. Yeast is cheap, so you're out three pounds of honey. You know, And you can use cheap honey to test a recipe, and then when you really like it, you can use good honey. So a lot of times, like when I'm when I'm experimenting, I'll use like clover honey from Costco. I know it's not the best honey, but if I'm wondering like, does this idea have merit? And I'm like, you know what? That's that's pretty good. It's a little bit thin in body. It doesn't have quite the character that I'm looking for, but the the flavor combinations there. Well, now I'll go use my really great locally sourced or wildflower or something like that honey. Or something that's like, I've done some meads using sea grape honey from, from Florida. Like, I'm going to test it cheap, and then I'm going to perfect it with quality. Right? That's just basic 101 there. And it's really like, I'm telling you, about 14 to 16 ounces of any fruit in that same base recipe works. I mean, 
I've looked at so many, you know, five-gallon recipes, and when you do the math, that's what you're looking at usually, about a pound per gallon plus the honey of that fruit. So I just adjusted it down, and I'll tell you, you get more flavor extraction in a small batch. So if you're trying to replicate a batch as a five-gallon batch or using a pound and a half, you'll probably get about the same amount of contribution with a pound. It just seems to work out that way. My yeast combination, um, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, for you guys for that as well. It's two different yeasts I use together. I'm also the only one I know that does that other than people that listen to me, and everybody tells me that I'm wrong, but I make amazing mead. And then the last thing that I love about these one-gallon batches, you can cold crash so easily. Cold crashes where, like, the mead's done, but it's just not completely cleared out yet. Well, you, it's hard to put a five-gallon or six-and-a-half-gallon carboy into a refrigerator. You can take, if you think the mead's done, and you know, about the only thing that makes it obstructive is that airlock sticking up out of the top. Remember that lid that I said to save? Rinse that sucker off under hot top, tap water. That's good enough to be safe. Take the one with the airlock off your mead. Put that one on, maybe a little bit loose. I go ahead and put it down tight. Put it in the refrigerator. It'll start to cold crash. The next day I'll go in there and I'll open that lid a little bit. And if it goes, I know the yeast is still working a little bit. So I'll close it, stick it back in the refrigerator. I'll keep doing that till when I open that bottle, there's no And that that meat is done. And then I'll bottle. You can also then transfer it into another one-gallon jug, put the lid on it, and just store it in the refrigerator. Or anywhere. And I'm not adverse to plastic like some people are. So if you don't want a bottle and you just don't want all that sediment from your secondary in there, transfer and cold crash it again. And you can do that a couple times to where you get no sediment if you really want to. I usually don't think it's worth doing uh, to that level. But that's my basics, and I love doing it, and I need to do it more myself. Um, just real quick here, Travis in Kentucky said, I just had an interesting talk with the store manager for my rural Kentucky Dollar General store. Uh, every Tuesday, she gets a list of items to be marked up in cost from corporate. Usually, it's one or two pages long, and the markups are somewhere between 10 to 25 cents. Today, she received a markup list. It's 13 pages, and most items are marked up at least a dollar Inflation is transitory, though. Um, inflation is about to kick into high gear. It won't be hyperinflation. I hate that term because of what people mean when they say it. It might actually be accurate, but it's not what people mean when they say it, which is why I don't like to use it. So hyperinflation to me means Weimar, Germany, Zimbabwe, um, Venezuela, something like that. But definitely painful inflation, and this is why it's about to happen. The rest of the world's opening up from COVID. That's why. That's enough. It's more. That's more the reason why than money printing. It's more the reason why than money printing. Money printing doesn't help. But England, Great Britain, has just opened up everything, soccer stadiums, etc. It was actually good for well us. When I say us, I mean people in like Texas and Florida. That as the United States reopened, it wasn't everybody all at the same time. That it was like, you know, finally somebody like Connecticut's like, hey, even though we're Democrats, we're going to reopen. And then, like, it took a long time for all these other places to open. And it kind of phased in. Well, you're getting some fairly large, heavy-duty, 
Western nations that are high consumers opening up now. I don't think Canada's got their shit together on this yet, but maybe that's good for us because what we're doing is we're putting more draw on the global supply chain. And even when you're thinking about items that maybe we grow or we make in the United States, we also export a lot of that shit. So when you have like all the pubs that are not out of business yet reopening in, in, in England and all the food that they serve and all the restaurants and et cetera that were doing less business, all the sports venues, all of the supplies and materials that go with that, like the draw on a system that has been shut down. Again, we have to be cognizant of the fact we've never done this before. And this is where I agree and disagree with the word transitory. I do think it's transitory, but how long is the transit and what does the other side of it look like? The way it's kind of battered around is don't worry about it. Yeah, shit's going to go up in price, but it'll come back down and everything will go back to the way it was. No. I think things will get worse, then they'll stay. But they'll never go back to where they were. And I think it will continue to move through different, different things at different times. Have you noticed you don't see any more memes about how expensive plywood is? That's because while lumber is still expensive compared to where it was a year and a half ago, it's nowhere near expensive as it was a month and a half ago. The prices really came down on lumber as the supply chain adjusted to the reopening and got people back in the sawmills, and as customers hit a limit, okay, I'm not paying that much for a piece of plywood. And at some point, the people willing to had bought it, and they were done. And then you have a supply glut on the other end of it. That will happen in most things. Where it will tend not to happen is in food. Because you need food. We don't buy food just because we want it. We also buy it because we need it. And I think food will be the thing that holds the greatest retained inflation through the end of this. And I think we are only beginning to see the shortages that I said are coming this year. Um, the last thing that I looked at, spring wheat in the United States, 27% of our current spring wheat crop is considered excellent. Normally, like our average of what percent of, like this time of year when you look at the spring wheat crop, what percentage is excellent is over 70. That's a problem. And we're seeing this due to climatic conditions. We're seeing this due to stupid behaviors of our government where we're continuing to export at breakneck speed our base grain feedstocks while other nations are banning exportation. And unlike timber, right, so yes, you have to grow a tree, but the trees are there and the forest management systems are in place. And there, since it's a longer growth cycle, it's like, Minimum 15-year growth cycle with pine in the fastest-growing conditions. A lot are closer to 20, 25 years. When there's a problem, there's a lot more time to work that out and stretch it across and amateurize it across those long growth cycles. And the, the trees that were planted 20 years ago are not affected by COVID. Only the sawmills and the lumberjacks, etc., are. So that is easier to correct. When you have a shortage of grain... You can't fix it till the next growing season. See how that works? And that's why I think you're going to see continued pressure on food prices. There's a definite move by the people in power to reduce meat consumption over a misguided belief that meat is bad for the planet. Um, that will continue. 
But even if it didn't, if you have more, I don't. I know most of the shit we shouldn't be feeding our livestock, but we do, and that's where most of the supply comes from. And when you put pressure on the feedstock, you put pressure on the livestock, and you put pressure on the price of both. So this is real. It's not going away anytime soon. I don't like the word transitory. I would call it semi-transitory. The truth usually lies somewhere in between the two extremes. It doesn't always. Sometimes one of the extremes is right. I don't think that it's right here. Uh, but prep, be ready, grow some of your own food. You're not going to have food shortages in local suppliers if you have the relationships already. The guy down the road from you that raises grass-fed beef is going to have grass in his field. He's going to be able to feed his cows because he feeds them grass. You see what I'm saying? Like, he's not going to be out of cows. Now, if you don't have the pre-existing relationship, and as these, these shortages become more and more extreme again, and they will, and they will be semi-transitory in that they will correct over time because the global market has not gone away. But if you, during that time, decide all of a sudden, well, I want to start buying you know, cows from Bill the Farmer down the road. I want to buy a half beef every year. He may have all his cows sold. And the time to talk to that person is now, not next month, not six months, because it takes about 18 months to go from newborn calf to full-grown beef ready for harvest. And that's a long cycle. So whether it's pastured poultry, whether it's pastured pork, whether it's grass-fed beef, whatever, if you have local suppliers and you want to rely on them, form the relationship now, get on the customer list now, start buying from them now, and then don't forget like how this works. When everybody decides they need to store beef, they need what? Deep freezers. And deep freezers were like pulling hen's teeth to get not that long ago. So think about getting whatever your weaknesses are in your preparations Get them in place now. Get them in place now. Because it's not going to get easier for a while. And it could get harder in the semi-transitory phase. It could get a lot harder. It could get a lot more expensive for a while as well. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Everything there, I own it, I use it, I bought it, I buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend you spend your money on it. Today's item of the day is S-P-Q-R, Everything Bagel Seasoning. Um, this was one of those things, when I heard it existed, there's an old TV show I used to watch all the time called Big Bang Theory. I thought it was really funny. And there's a character on there named Raj. And somebody said something to him at one time, and he said, Shut your ass! Like, just being like amazed that this thing was true. When somebody told me I could buy everything bagel seasoning, like comes on an everything bagel in a jar, that's how I felt. And I was also like, you dumbass, you should have known that. The people that make the bagels have to get it somewhere. Um, it is a great seasoning. There's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. Um, And I mean, and I've got some recipes and some ideas in today's write-up as well where you can look at it for yourself. But remember, whether it's that or anything else I've got listed or anything at all, as long as you start at tspaz.com, you support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And yes, I have some keto, low-carb recipes using everything bagel seasoning. They're not low-carb bagels, though. There's other ways to use this stuff. And one is a really great way to make a low-carb cracker. 
makes a good seasoning on a low-carb cracker. And the reason I brought this item around today is my wife made those crackers today, and we talked about this seasoning. I'm like, yeah, I need to run that again, even though we didn't use it for these crackers. We, we made these crackers a little bit more Tex-Mex style, more like a nacho flavor. Um, but the bagel was freaking awesome, too. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. I am off of John Adam, who does all the music planning for me normally's list. My wife shared a song with me this week. This is not the song. The song's by Aaron Lewis. Some of you that follow me over the weekend on social media probably know the song that I'm saving for Thursday to play. But when I heard that song, it was so perfect for the times that we're in. It, it hit me so emotionally. I went and shared it with a ton of people just by instant message, like personal friends I know in real life type situation. And I decided I didn't want to do that song on a Monday. So I decided to do an Aaron, Aaron Lewis week, which we've done before, but I'm picking the songs this time. And this is a song my wife particularly loves, and I do as well. And I think we love it for different reasons. I think she loves it for the sound that it has and the melody and the whole part of it. And I love it for the message in it. It's called Massachusetts. And he's singing about rural Massachusetts, where he's from. And he's singing about the culture of the place. And there's a line in it where he talks about Worthington. And he says, a place hasn't changed that much in time. It's been there, you know, for longer, for well before this country came to be, when it was just colonies that, that Worthington was there. And these places, they haven't changed that much. My issue is many of them have. Massachusetts was the cradle of the revolution. It was the birthplace of the revolution. It was the place that men first stood up against the crown and said, no, we will be free. And now it has become the cradle of tyranny, in my opinion. It is places like Massachusetts and Boston. It's places like Philadelphia where this ludicrous nonsense, it, it's not just the West Coast, guys, where gun control is tighter in Massachusetts than most other states, and it's the state that launched the damn revolution. And that juxtaposition, and he talks about seeing the Berkshires. When he sees them, he can cry. They mean so much to him. And to me, that kind of symbolizes where where all this started, where all this came from. And it'll fit well when we get to the song at the end of the week. It's a new one out by Aaron. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
daughters and my wife, they wait for me. Cause I'm 